Are you ready? Hey everybody! Hey folks! Hello everybody! People in the back! Welcome everybody! Welcome to the inner loop! Welcome everybody! Welcome to the inner loop! Without further ado! Without further ado! Okay, so without further ado, we're gonna get started. We should get started. We're yeah. Rolling. I'm rolling. We're, we're, we're gonna get started. <laughs> Welcome to the Inner Loop Radio. I'm Rachel Kuntz. And I'm Courtney Sexton. And thank you for joining us. If you haven't already, remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you stream from. The Inner Loop Radio is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play, and every other streaming site we could possibly find. It's true. <laughs> and if there's somewhere you'd like to hear the Inner Loop Radio where it isn't currently available, just shoot us an email at theinnerlooplit at gmail.com. And on today's episode, we have an exciting hour of local literature planned for you. As always. Courtney, do you want to explain a little bit about the inner loop before we get started? Absolutely. Um, and also, this is our uh, first show of the new year, so... It's true. Happy, Happy new year. year. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, for those of you who don't know, the inner loop is a literary reading series for writers here in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. And writers come and read their own work each month. Their experience varies uh, from the absolute beginner to Pulitzer Prize winners and everywhere in between. And they range in genre from poetry to fiction to nonfiction and sometimes even playwriting and experimental writing. And on the Inner Loop Radio, we like to offer some highlights from our readings as well as going a little bit further in depth on the writing experience. So for today's show, we're going to go in depth on publishing because it's the new year and we're all making our resolutions this year and for many writers that includes getting published but how about you Courtney what are your new year's resolutions well uh one of them for sure and I think we'll uh, we'll talk about this later is addressing the stack of books that is laying <laughs> next to my bed um Indeed. because as a writer I certainly always draw inspiration and ideas and um you know, just reminders of the craft from other great writers. So I certainly want to do some more reading. Um, let's see what else. I would like to actually sit down and put together some of the pieces that have been pieces of things for a very long time. <laughs> I, have a, I have a bad habit of uh, leaving little little notes all over my desktop and all over my house <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> and they need to be they need to be developed something. yes yes that that's the discipline part that's the hard part <laughs> um, right. yeah I also need to start reading again um, I feel like I for a while there I was doing really well and I always had a book that I was at least working on but it's been a bit last, last year was busy and weird and hard and I feel like all of last year I wasn't really reading very much, um, so definitely need to get back on the horse, as they say. Um, work out more, eat healthy. Yeah, all those things. All those things. In a month we'll be like, ah, uh, what? I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, but <laughs> books, my, I think books. my biggest resolution is to finish my memoir. Ooh. I know. That's a good one. <laughs> Yeah, just, yeah, I guess I should tell people that way that I'm accountable. Then it's out there, right? Yeah. Yeah, so once you start talking about it, then it becomes a real thing. Um, so, as we said, many writers um, want to publish more, and I, that's certainly one of my resolutions for the year. I am not good at submitting. Mm -hmm. um, I have, like, two bouts a year, and I'll submit to one story to five magazines, and then I'll do nothing more well it's a daunting process too you know you have to psych yourself up for it and you have to keep track of all the different submission deadlines and it's, it's i have a whole spreadsheet yeah and it's time consuming it is very time consuming and not to mention heartbreaking <laughs> a thousand tiny heartbreaks <laughs> uh the personalized rejection is the best <laughs> 
actually love those. I do too. I it's feel like, oh, it got red. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I feel really good about those personal objects. I wasn't. I wasn't kidding. <laughs> but those are, you know, that's what I aspire to as a personal objection. <laughs> I haven't even gotten to the point where um, I'm aspiring to actually. It's all relative Stan- standards. <laughs> you got to keep it. Keep expectations. You know, at a certain point. But uh, Courtney de- just had something published <clears throat> in the Fourth River, correct? I did. Yeah. Um, and but I remember you telling me a while ago that that got accepted and it just appeared. So what was that process like? Yeah. So this is actually um, the second of two pieces, and one was in the actual print magazine. The Fourth River is a great little literary journal out of Chatham, um, and I do a lot of environmental and nature writing, and they kind of cater to that mm-hmm. genre. Um, so I had a piece in there, a print issue last spring. Um, and then this piece was for an online, their online version of the magazine. Um, they were doing a special with the theme of tributaries. Uh, and which is perfect for this story right. that you wrote, which yes. I love. Yes. So this piece is <laughs> Maybe all about my rivers. favorite story <laughs> that you've written. Uh, which is good because it was part of my thesis work. So at least, <laughs> at least that went somewhere. Um, but yeah, so I was familiar with the magazine. And I mean, that's always step one, right? Finding the ones that align with, with your writing and with your interests. Absolutely. Um, and that's like arguably the hardest part. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so when I saw that they were doing this special issue, I was like, oh man, I know something I can, I can submit to that. And so I think they were working out when they were going to be publishing the different ones because it's kind of a rolling series. Mm. And so they weren't quite sure where it was going to fit in. And initially it was supposed to be December. Um, and then the editor sent me a note and said, hey, here's when we have yours slotted for. It'll be the first week in January or something. Um, and then it ended up being the week after that. But it was just a little bit of a waiting game. Mm. But for me, it's kind of like, once they accept it, I'm like, okay, <laughs> you, can, you can do it whenever you want. And you don't think about it again? <laughs> Not really. Like, I get excited and, like, wait for it to come out. But I'm like, at least I, if, when I know it has a home, yeah, then it's pressure's off. Yeah, know? it's true. Yeah. That's so. such a good feeling. Yeah, so I was really happy to, to see this one find a, find a place that felt good. Yeah, I haven't had any print stuff published but i did get a audio documentary yeah i remember that i love that one that well i'm glad you did (laughs) but that was like um 2012 Mm -hmm. yeah i've i've been doing a terrible job no you've been writing more than i have (laughs) (laughs) well okay i'll take that i'll take that consolation it's true Well, Courtney and I are far from experts on the subject of publishing, as we've only gotten a couple of pieces between us out there in the world. But now that you've gotten the novice perspective on publishing, let's get with a much more experienced writer. Let's get him in here. Um, Up next, writer David Ebenbach joins us on our discussion for publishing, and he's going to read us a story. So stay tuned. Rachel Kuntz and Courtney Sexton here. We're continuing our show on New Year's resolutions. And for many of us writers, that means trying to get published or just publishing more. And joining us in the studio to read one of his latest published pieces and to discuss the publishing process is David Ebenbach. Welcome, David. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Oh, there's your mic. Try again. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for having me. Oh, we're so happy to have you on the show. Yeah, we're we're psyched. David has been a great supporter of the Inner Loop, so it's it's lovely to have him here in the studio. We had a great reading this summer, right? When that incredibly hot yes restaurant, <laughs> we all lost air 10 conditioners in broken sweat. in it the middle of July or August. <laughs> yeah, that was, it was a good night. I remember you reading something about snow, though. And it, yeah. yeah. It's perfect. Um, well, David's uh, latest short story collection called The Guy We Didn't Invite to the Orgy and Other Stories is coming out next month. 
And how are you feeling about that, David? Are you excited? I'm really excited. Uh, you know, we'll talk later about the whole publishing thing, but it took a few years for mm. this to end up in print mm -hmm. and some real persistence. So for it to finally be coming to fruition and there are things like they're sending me the cover, mm. you know, so I get to see what that looks Exciting. like. It starts to feel real and, you know, preparing for readings and then stuff like this. It's getting really fun. Great. Nice. This is yeah. the good part. Yeah, this is yeah, definitely the good part. <laughs> this is kind of the victory lap part. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, David has been so kind as to agree to read one of these stories that is in the book for yeah, us. Thanks so much for asking me to. I was going to read uh, the title story, but it's not uh, fit for radio. So <laughs> I'm going to read one called Everyone Around Me. And I wrote it when I was at an artist colony one summer, which, you know, for those of you who don't know, uh, is a place where people, composers, painters, writers, come together to just work on their stuff, and they get fed, and it's a wonderful environment, and it can get a little competitive. Uh -huh. <laughs> so this is called Everyone Around Me. Basically, I wanted everyone around me to fail. I wanted them to step up with confidence, to have a warm sense of themselves as they started playing the recordings of their symphonies, or showed the first slides of their sculptures, or started into the first lines of their poems, and then I wanted to feel the gradual spreading recognition among us, measure after measure, or slide after slide, or line after line, that this was very bad work, upsettingly bad work, trivial, <laughs> familiar, self-indulgent. I wanted each of us to be wondering how we would respond when the presentation was over. What would we say to the artist? What positive thing was there to say without being dishonest? And then I wanted everyone around me to fail at the response. I wanted the applause to be scattered and awkward. And I wanted people to stumble over dodgy phrases like really interesting and, you know, provocative. And was it nice to share your work? <laughs> then I would approach the bereft artists and I would be the only person able to console them, to find some genuine goodness in their work for them to treasure. When it was my turn, I would rise and take my place at the front of the room and begin to move through slides of my paintings, talking quietly about what had drawn me toward each of these images, and though it would be somewhat dark in the room, I would be able to see that, even after the first few slides, there were tears on the faces of everyone around me, grateful, humble tears, and even the sound of the occasional gentle sob. And in this way, everyone around me would be elevated from failure and lifted to a place where, just after me, they would begin to understand how they might succeed. <clears throat> People, however, did not fail. In some cases, I didn't know whether the work was good or bad, but in all cases, they were received as successes. The audience of artists applauded rapturous applause. They hooted. They called for more. Presentations usually happened after dinner, after we had spent all day in our studios working on our various things. I was trying to push my paintings towards some of the hotter colors, and then come together for whatever meal the artist's colony had made us. Usually the meals were good. At the very least, they were always good in the sense that they had been made for us for free and would be cleaned up for us too. I didn't want the kitchen staff to fail. I wanted them to lead happy, prosperous, well-appreciated lives. Toward the end of the meal, there would be the sound of someone tapping a knife against a water glass, and everyone would quiet, and the person would announce they were doing a short presentation after dessert, and everyone would applaud even the announcement. Everyone would applaud even if the person was announcing that he would be singing some new songs for the third time during our month-long stay. There was a man who did that, who sang us new songs on three different occasions, not even counting the couple he reeled out casually for late-night drinking sessions in one studio or another, though never in mine. I wanted this man in particular to fail, though he had always been very nice to me. He sat across from me at meals more than once and told me interesting things about songwriter circles and living in Atlanta and asked me things about me and my life, too. I wanted him to fail, but again... I wanted to be the one who succeeded at making him feel better about it, at making him feel underappreciated rather than under-talented. What's, what's wrong with these people, we'd say, shaking our heads. And so ultimately, it would be a more positive experience for him than if he had gotten a standing ovation. Everyone around me loved him and his work. 
They couldn't contain their enthusiasm. One person actually put two fingers in her mouth to make that especially piercing whistle. He was on each occasion hounded until he added an encore song. Afterward, I was one among many saying, great job, though I also tried to add something specific and memorable, something about the unexpectedness of a certain lyric or the haunting nature of the refrain. It took creativity. By the time I got to him, many choice comments had already been made. In my studio, I pushed on those hot colors. I brought them in from the corners in a step-by-step -step way. The first canvas I did during my month there just had these hunter orange moments in dots in the upper left, but the one after that crimsoned all the way down the right side in a fading stripe. When the colony staff brought me red apples with my lunch basket, I used them in some still-life paintings. Why not a still-life? Ones where the bowl was empty at the center of the work, but the apples were steadily marching inward. I pushed on those colors. At night, though, I felt like the colors were being shoved back again. I sat at dinner enjoying the potatoes or whatnot, but otherwise miserable. In the terrible, raucous acoustics of the dining room, I tried to find my way into conversations that seemed like a hundred people banging hammers on the table. Then someone would announce another presentation. One woman presented, <clears throat> a video artist, a person who did these short videos of cooking and eating in ways that made the acts of cooking and eating seem very strange. She apologized for each video. I know it's not as exciting as some of the other stuff people are doing here, or this one just goes on and on forever, or I don't know why I was so excited about noodles for so long. <laughs> and in a way, it was like a setup. All the self-deprecation guaranteed the love of her peers. The truth, though, was that her stuff was good. The morning after I saw her videos, I was very conscious of the way I was spearing my food with my fork, the way I was chewing it. She had illuminated something. And so even if she had said, here are some pretty damn good clips, people would have responded with the same vigorous applause. They would have been wrong not to. Oh, how I wanted everyone around me to fail. During those late-night drinking sessions, I tried to explain my battle with the hot colors and my inability to stop dark-greening everything, and people listened and even commented and asked questions, but mostly people didn't want to talk about work while they were drinking at night, and what I really wanted, for my personal struggle to be the most important thing in these artists' lives, as it was in mine, was of course distantly out of reach. I drank to great excess on those nights. There were days when I couldn't pull an angry yellow into my work at all, where every time I tried to bring it in, I just kept messing with it until it was softening, shifting into some pale leaf color. And there was a day when I painted a canvas, a chaos of sun hues, painted it in one long, furious, sloppy attack. The days were all very different from one another, except in that things always seemed quite uncertain. And the nights were all essentially the same. One woman shared poems that she'd written while at the colony, brand new things. She'd written, if you could believe her, a couple dozen new poems in three weeks. And before they were even quite finished, she decided to read some of them to us. She stood in a proud, contented way at the podium, actually a hijacked music stand, and told us that she was really psyched about the work. My desire for her to fail approached the level of prayer. It seemed so little to ask. I don't know enough about poetry to really know what was strong and what was weak, but I'll admit that a couple of images have stayed with me, particularly the one about the rain running to the underside of the branches. And in any case, she finished to hollering, foot-stomping applause. Of course, you didn't have to go to the presentations. They were optional. It was just that everyone else did go, and it was just that I had the need to see disaster strike someone, and every time it didn't come, it just increased the urgency that it come eventually. I had signed up to do a presentation myself, scheduled it for the very end of my stay, and it still seemed possible that someone would deliver a fiasco before it was my turn at the front of the room. I painted, I'll say, in a determined way, though almost like something larger than me was doing the determining. I lined canvases against walls and even began to lean other canvases on top of the early ones, two and three deep. 
I covered a drafting table with fashion magazines and oranges, oranges everywhere, and I painted them a half dozen different ways. The presentations continued. A man read a chunk of a novel that took place in Western Africa, and people peppered him with questions afterward. A woman showed us images of looming, affecting sculptures that looked carved from marble, but were actually plastic and foam. Another person played jazz piano in a way that led us to contemplative silence and then, inevitably, sober and earnest clapping. Was the choreographer any good? I wasn't sure. Was the other poet too funny? I didn't know. I knew that they were all loved. My plan had been to show old work at my presentation. I had plenty of stuff on slides that had been shown in galleries, work that had gotten good reviews. By the end of my time there, I knew, though, that it was impossible to get as much appreciation as these other people. I was not going to be the one true artist at the center of everyone. I decided to cancel my presentation. But while I stood at the calendar outside the dining hall, having trouble crossing my name off somehow, the man who shared his songs all the time saw me there and asked what I was doing. I told him, and he told me not to cross myself off. You should present, he said. Tell you what, I'll do some songs before you, warm things up. And so I did. First the man with the songs played two more, three with the encore, and people loved him very much. Then I stood up and went to the wall at the front of the room where I had leaned five of my new canvases facing away from everyone. There had been no time to make slides of them, of course, so to show them I just had to hold them in my hands awkwardly, try to get them into the light. One of the, artists, one of the other artists jumped up and said she would hold them for me, and after thanking her with a real gratitude and surprise, I stepped back to see my work myself. I tried to explain how the hot colors were coming in from the corners, and I built up to one of the paintings where it was all oranges all over the place. The one, in fact, that I was least sure about, but which interested me the most. I looked around at everyone. It wasn't the scene I had envisioned, where everyone around me had tears on their faces after the first couple of paintings. They didn't have tears on their faces at all. I did, though. I did from the first painting on. I finished talking, finished presenting. People applauded. It wasn't more than other people had gotten, and it wasn't less. They cheered me in the way that they had cheered everyone else. I sat heavily, a little stunned, on the nearest couch as people started to come over to tell me nice things. I hadn't failed. I hadn't failed, and neither had anyone else. Everyone gathered around me. They told me, more or less, we are the same, and we are the same, and we are the same. I continued to weep. Those were the words I had always wanted. <laughs> I'm starting to get a little teared up. <laughs> <laughs> That was awesome, David. Thank you. Thank you so much. I can't wait to see the rest of the collection. Uh, well, early February. Okay. Yes, and I can't wait to hear about the publishing process. We're going to take a short break and come back with David Evenbach and our discussion on the wonderful or wretched world of, pu of publishing. here. We're continuing our discussion on publishing with David Ebenbach, who joins us in the studio. And so, David, what can you tell us about the publishing process of a short story collection, which I've heard is one of the most difficult things to get published? 
It's true. Um, yeah, I think there there has to be the caveat of talking about a short story collection versus talking about a novel or a memoir. Right. Um, you know, one of the things I tried to do with an earlier version of this collection, and I'll, I'll talk about that, but there are these two versions, and the first one I did send to some agents, and, you know, they basically sent me back these nice notes saying, we just are not ever going to be doing short story collections. Really? Wow. Yeah. So the big publishing houses, unless you're George Saunders or Alice Munro, she's retired anyhow, <laughs> um, you're going you're gonna to really have to go to the small presses and mostly mm. contests. Mm -hmm. um, really? Contests? Yeah. So, I was once told, just don't bother submitting to contests because there's always a fee mm. and they're so difficult. It's like so difficult to be the one out of hundreds of submissions, thousands. thousands I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it really can be very difficult. I got a, for my poetry manuscript, I got a note at one point saying, well, I'm sorry, you didn't win. There were 700 uh, people who, you know, and how many of those 700 manuscripts should have been books? Probably right. quite a lot of them. Yeah. Um, and it's just a sort of hit or miss thing with contests. When my first book was published through a contest and I went to the the night where they there was a prize and so there was a night where there was a reading and the judge talked about the other two manuscripts who didn't get picked and I also got to see it from that angle and mm -hmm. thought, you know, if the judge had been a different person, it would have been somebody else right. who was sitting there then getting published because it's taste. It's so subjective, right? It is. It's inherently subjective. But um, I think that contests are really the only way that short story collections are getting published <laughs> these days. I mean, not literally only. There are oh, some right. small presses <laughs> that do it, but the vast majority of them through contests. Um, wow. Sort of like poetry manuscripts. I know a guy, uh, the poet Kyle McCord, this great poet, um, who says that if you're not spending, you know, hundreds of dollars a year on contests, you're not you're serious not about it. Right. Yeah, <laughs> oh you don't, you're not trying to get published. Oh, no. <laughs> so yeah. And in fact, the first version of the book, which was called Missionaries, and it was not right. You know, eventually I had to fix it. I had to take some stories out. I had to put some stories in. I had to rearrange things. I had mm. to rethink the theme. Um, but that was rejected 36 times. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. And then... Uh, and you keep track of all of those. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's just so I can, you know, put myself through the, the anguish uh, yeah, repeatedly. Of course. <laughs> um, the, when the new version, the guy we didn't invite to the orgy and other stories, that was rejected six times before it was picked up. So that did quite a bit better. So is this a trajectory? Is it going to get better and better each time? <laughs> you know, I, w I think there's a, there is a little bit of that. My, my most rejected stories came at the very beginning right and there's a there's a kind of thing i don't know if how editors would feel about me saying this but i'll just go <laughs> ahead um i think of editors as being somewhat timid woodland creatures and they don't like to drink at a pond if unless if another no one else has right they say oh, oh it must yes. be safe there's yeah. another deer at the pond mm -hmm. um so once they see that it's safe then they'll come in so there is a bit of that kind of mm. once, you, once you're out there in the world that's kind of oh we see and then yeah it gets easier and easier mm -hmm. but not you know such that eventually they're just flying off the desk and people are, you know, editors are calling me saying, where's the next story, David? There's not, it's, not, it's not happening. What? That doesn't happen after the first book? <laughs> well, it could just be me. <laughs> no. Maybe it happens to everybody else. But uh, my, my, this most recent collection, most of the stories in it were published before the book. Um, and most of those only were rejected, kind of single digit number of rejections. Mm. Whereas with my first book, real common to be in the 20s. Um, and wow. In fact... In my first book, the title story, and I'll say a couple things that sounds like I'm tooting my own horn, but you'll see what I mean. Um, when the story was published, it won a prize, and then the book won the prize that I most wanted in the whole world to win, mm. and then it won another prize. Well, that title story was rejected 61 times wow. before Whoa. it was picked up. So I say all this to say... Keep at it. Exactly. You know, I think that's so important to hear as a emerging writer. I Absolutely. feel like writers who have made it probably don't like to think about the rejections <laughs> before they got published. But it's like so important to hear that, to hear, because you do take every rejection kind of personally, even though you mm. know you're not supposed to. Right. You know you're not supposed to. It happens to everyone. But it hurts every time. Yeah. So it's amazing to hear that something that was so well received and won so many rewards got rejected mm -hmm. 60 63 Sorry. 61 yeah 61. <laughs> but you know this is what we have to do that you know it's if we're stoppable crazy. we'll be stopped 
You know, one thing, I don't know if this is useful, you tell me, but at one point, because it does hurt, I decided to try and turn it into a game. Uh-huh. And then it became a little more fun. I thought, I had noticed that one month I had sent out as many things as there were days of that month. Wow. And that includes, you know, when I send out poems, I send five at a time. So okay. that would count sure. as five. Um, but then I thought, could I do that for a whole year? Wow. And I'll tell you, most years I send out more than 365 things. Oh, wow. <laughs> Um, you know, and that's, and it becomes a game because I'm thinking, oh, I'm falling behind. It's October. Well, and it keeps you motivated too. Yes. That's, I mean, that's a brilliant system. It works for me. And wow. I need baby steps. Okay. I, I submit <laughs> like 10 a year. Well, well I'd like make to it have... 12, one per month. <laughs> there you there go. it is. I can do that. Okay. Yeah, to have 365 things to submit would be my goal. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but they're not, of course, they're not different things. Right. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah, that would be. I don't, I don't have I don't know what that would be. I, think. I, don't, yeah, I don't know how that would Scary, work. maybe. <laughs> like Marcel Proust just like right in the same. <laughs> Didn't you know, Rachel? Nobody can see this. <laughs> no, we're not there at this point, at least. So we're, uh, you mentioned that the first book, most of the stories, um, were most of the stories published for both books? Because you were mentioning mm-hmm. the rejection process. So were they yeah. all published or almost all? Or how does that work? So I've had, uh, this will be the third story collection. And in each case, most of the stories were published in magazines before the book came out. And I, th- you know, <clears throat> I was told in grad school to do that, that it's going to mm. kind of garner interest for the book. But then the fact that you submit blind to a contest to people who don't know that you've been published in any magazines mm. makes me think that right. it probably doesn't work like that. And that instead what it is, is it's just so nice to have something you can hold in your hand. Mm. And while you're waiting for the book, you know, it takes even if someone takes your book, it takes a year for it to come out. Right. So what do you do while you're waiting? And then of course, thirty six rejections. Maybe it'll never come out. You know, what do you do? <laughs> and I think the magazines really give you something to hold on to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the publishers don't mind that it's been previously published. No, uh, theoretically, they, they, they like it. Right. Um, <laughs> but I don't know if they like it a lot. They certainly don't dislike it at all. Yeah, that was. A, I was trying to explain that process. I think to. I think to my father recently. Mm. He was asking about poetry, which is a similar process. Lots right. of individual poems are published before a whole collection is, um, and I hadn't really thought about it from the short story perspective, but it makes sense. That market is really very similar, except that I think there are more small poetry presses than there are small short sure. story presses. So yeah. in a way, it's a little bit more of a squeeze mm-hmm. for the short story writer. I'm always envious of poetry writers because it's so small that like the magazine can fit more in. Yeah. So I feel like there's more space more for space poetry. For and then I just feel like, you know... I, if I sit down and write a story, it takes me like years, mm. I feel like, to polish a story. Maybe that's because I'm not very good at it. But Some poets um, are like that, too. Okay. <laughs> yep. But I feel like, you know, poets are better at saying, I'm going to write a poem a day. Mm. And that's mm. uh, an achievable goal. And I feel like if I tried to write a story a day... Oh, God. It'd yeah. be, that's outrageous. Yeah. So That's the challenge, in fact, isn't it, for Poetry Month, a poem a day? Mm-hmm. That's yeah, the, ex- mm-hmm. exactly, yeah. exactly. So that's I just feel so envious of, of poets who can just, like, spread it out, you know, like, send out 30 poems. They have 30 poems yeah. to send right. out. <laughs> and at open mics, they have such an advantage. When I used to be exactly. in grad school, and I wasn't writing much poetry then, we had five minutes. And so, yep. you, you know, you that's read, what we do at the like, loop. a scene of yeah. dialogue. But the poets get up and read 15 poems, right. you know. It's so kind of, unfair. <laughs> but they, you know, there's a lot of lack of appreciation for poets in other ways, so. Yeah, sure. that's true. That's very true. Um, I, I had a question a little bit about the story you just, yeah. do, we have, do we have time yeah, to Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, that you just read for us. Um, so is that, well, one, first of all, when you're putting together a collection, mm. do you think of a theme ahead of time or is it more kind of, I've written these pieces, they've been placed and I see this cohesive thread and I think they would really fit well together? It's, I guess, sort of a mix. I mean, when my first collection happened, I didn't even know I was working on a book. I thought the stories were biding my time while mm. I was trying to get to the novel. Mm-hmm. Um and then my one of my mentors said, don't you have enough stories for a book? So that just sort of happened. Got and it. it turned out they, they mostly sat nicely with one another, and, and so it could work. 
Um, but after that, I had book on the brain. And anytime I wrote a story, I thought, what's this part of? Right. Which sure. I actually think is kind of a terrible thing. Yes. It can really put pressure on, on mm -hmm. the story, which just wants to do its thing. Mm -hmm. Right. I've, I've been feeling that a lot because, as I mentioned earlier, my New Year's resolution is to finish my memoir. So yeah. now every time I start a story, I'm like, how does this, how does this fit, fit in? right. into the memoir? And then I feel really crippled because like... I want, I need to make it work and I want to shoehorn it, but that's not how I write at all. Mm. So I feel like, I don't know. And this, and as you're saying, like this collection, it's a collection of short pieces, the memoir. Mm -hmm. So it just came about from like writing stories at grad school, one-offs. And then I was like, oh, these kind of fit together. Mm -hmm. um, so I got to figure out how to let go of yeah. the need. You know, I think, I don't know if this fit. will be useful for you, but I think I started writing poetry earnestly because I wanted to do something that couldn't go in right. the book. Mm -hmm. you know? yeah. I mean, I guess it could. Sherman Alexie does that. He puts it all, mashes it all together. together but, yeah. but he's Sherman Alexie. He gets to do what he wants <laughs> Some to. people can do that. <laughs> right. So I think that's one reason I, I started doing that, just to break that hold. Yes. Mm -hmm. and, I, and themes can take over. The, the original version of this book, Missionaries, I set out to do all these first-person stories of people trying to convince the reader of something. And apparently I succeeded. My readers, you know, good friends of mine said, that's what all of these characters are doing. Mm -hmm. Could you please stop it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it was, it's too much the same thing over and over and over again. So there are times when succeeding fails. Yeah. And I had to then break it up and make it a more complicated book. Mm -hmm. And it was my obsession with it being a book that had kind of messed it up Made in the first happen. place. Huh. Hmm. Well, we really appreciate you joining us on the show today, David. Oh, thanks so much for having me. And You've I just want to great going. reiterate that David's book is called The Guy Who uh, We Didn't Invite to the Orgy and Other Stories, right? Uh, yes. And then you <laughs> can find you. out why that guy wasn't invited. That's what I want to know. <laughs> it's, a, it's a mystery, yes. <laughs> David, well, it's been a pleasure. Yes. Thank you so for much. For me too. Thank you. That interview was recorded in January of last year. David's book, The Guy We Didn't Invite to the Orgy and Other Stories, has since been released and is available on Amazon. There you can also find his latest novel entitled Miss Portland. Up next, another resolution for writers in the new year. Read more. Let's gather. <laughs> gather, please. Um, we can gather in. Gather around, gather around for the second half. And we're going to get started. We're going to get started. We'll get started. We're officially getting started. Not teasing you this time. We're continuing our show on New Year's resolutions. We just talked about for writers. For writers. <laughs> um, we just talked about publishing. And now we're going to talk about reading more. Um, and, Courtney, what do you want to read? Oh, man. Just give us, like, throw out three titles. Three titles. Jeez. Uh, so Quick. I, uh, quick as you can. Come uh, on, throw it out there. I can't. I can't. <laughs> there are a lot of animal behavior books that I'm in the middle of. Oh, and you. Trying to digest, so. Oh, she's applying for grad school. <laughs> well, um, I think two years ago I was on a long book kick okay. and I was going to read Moby Dick and Infinite Jest. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. That didn't happen. Nope. Um, and I don't think it's going to happen this year either. But I'm thinking short things. I wanna, I'm want i going back to the short kick. I mean, I've been like 40 pages into Infinite Jest for about a decade. So. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I've been halfway through Moby Dick for a decade. It's terrible. But anyway, speaking of reading. Yes. Um, we had Lisa Sewell, who is an amazing poet and a very dear friend and close mentor of mine. Um, she read with us at the Interloop Live back in April, and she read from her collection of poems that is on the subject of reading. So I'll let her explain that. Indeed. So um, this book, Impossible Object, is kind of, it's not exactly a project book, but it, all the poems are connected and um, the way that they're connected is all of the poems are about reading um, in one way or another. And every poem is sort of revolves around a particular book that I read at some point in my life um, that had some kind of importance or meaning for me. Um, the book, the poems are not like homages to the books or, and they're not even really about the books, but they're sort of 
thinking about reading or they have a relationship to each of the books. Um, the project started off with a poem in my last book, which is called Autobibliography, and I feel like it's a good way of explaining sort of what's going on in these poems. So that book, that poem was about um, when I was 13 and I was obsessed with books about crazy people. So the titles of those books, like The Bell Jar, I Never Promised You a Rose Garden, appear in that poem. And writing that poem made me start to think about how important reading was in my life. And I assume, you know, we're, we're probably all writers here and books are probably equally important to everybody in this room. I don't want to make any claim like books are more important to me than anybody else. But I decided to write about that experience or that feeling. Um, and I wrote about the books in three ways, um, or sort of in three ways. One was, you know, reading as an event, reading a book that felt like it made a difference in my life, um, reading while something was happening in my life, so a book I was reading while, let's say, for example, I was going through some heartbreak, or um, like my father died while I was working on these poems, so that kind of an event. Um, and then the third trajectory, um, books I was reading while something was happening in the world. Um, so I thought I would read a few poems from each of those kinds of examples. Um, and the other thing to know is one other thing that connects all the poems in this book is that I try to incorporate lines from the books into the poems. So I, and I, I sort of push them into my own sentences, but um, there may be some like diction shifts in, in the poems. <clears throat> okay. So I always like to start with the first poem in the book. I don't know, it makes me feel secure. Um, this, this poem um, is about um, Agatha Christie's, um, uh, now I just blanked on the title of the book, Murder on the Orient Express. Um, and I was uh, reading a whole bunch of Agatha Christie novels or stories um, in this collection that I have. And I started thinking about how great it would be if um, somebody like called me into a room and told me exactly what I'd done, you know. Um, and that, that's what inspired this poem. Long Corridor. Oh, summon me first to the porter's compartment to question in private my whereabouts and wardrobe, sleeping habits and origins. Then, with the other passengers on the Orient Express, the elder statesman, the small dark man with a womanish voice, to the velvet-curtained rail car scene of crimes. And in the voice of reason, tone that holds its own, but hoards its shocking revelations until the very end, tell what we have done. Be diminutive and mild, or darkly French with waxed mustaches, but choose an English and an explanation each of us can believe. And as pieces fall, as clouds disperse, expose the mottled clear blue entrails underneath. Show me the knife, my fingerprints on the cabinet door, the sound of a tap running, a splashing noise, the burned village, nightly body count and full terrain of my part and my complicity, now that I am no longer young and no longer free to point a knowing finger or vanish with the flamingo kimono down the long corridor of history. <clears throat> so um, the next poem it feels like a risky poem to have written um, because it's about To the Lighthouse, um, which I think is like everybody's favorite book or whatever, certain kinds of people's. You know, like, it's just like To the Lighthouse, right? So I, but, you know, when I was in college and I read To the Lighthouse, it really did, it did change everything for me about my relationship to reading, and I tried to write about that. Um, in this poem, and I have a caveat, I'm not trying to write like Virginia Woolf, okay? I just want to say that. <laughs> it may seem like I'm trying to do that, but I'm really not, okay. 
<laughs> Am I, well, I, don't, I just don't want to presume, you know, to compare myself. I'm not afraid of her. And I don't have a poem about who's afraid of her, so. Okay, to the lighthouse. In the narrow room, just barely just enough for dresser, student bed, with corridor voices leaking through the plasterboard dorm walls. I lay on my back, book anchored, elbows fixed, and read and turned the page, swinging herself from one line to another, and everything open suddenly opened. For beneath the color, there was the shape, everything shifting here or elsewhere, or a day before, or a month before that. On the winter sand of Southern California, edgy, nervous, at the edge and fault line of 17, with the Pacific feeling no longer washing over me, where winter waves bathe and blur the here and there, the wet and now, steady and moving echoes that were speaking quietly with bravado and not to me in busy hallways and from other rooms like sentences that made and saw and didn't separate Mr. Tansley and Mr. Ramsey and Mr. Banks, all jammed behind and to the side and after the reappearing he. And for the first time, I thought I too was what words took and continued making, and in a slow dawning on the dorm bed or in the sliding winter sand beneath my back, there was scarcely anything left of body or mind by which one could say, this is he or this is she, as though the war was on and I was in a waiting room trying to stop myself from falling, lying back against the sand to keep the ocean seeming mirror still and mirror flat, and suddenly, I knew there wasn't anyone to tell me where the ocean stopped and I began, or if the long-anticipated journey and what would happen next, like a wave which bore one up and threw one down with it, there with a dash on the beach. I wondered who would choose and how to weather what beached my body on the sand or perched lightly in the narrow, moving, floating room. Miles away, and close enough to hear them singing, sighing fully in their bodies beneath the oceanic mirror skin, the swimmers and floaters, gastropods and sponges, jellyfish, diatoms and elephant seals, who must rise to breathe with mammal lungs, were moving deliberately, without pause and without deliberation. And I was exactly, and I was more exactly not myself than anyone I had ever met reflected in the mirrored surface of the ocean's depth now and in these paragraphs, like rooms that I had never seen but always lived in. Um, okay, so this is an example of a poem I wrote while something was happening in the world, and um, the title is The Anatomy of Melancholy, um, um, Robert Burton's huge book about millions of things, including uh, um, melancholy from the 17th century. And I think it's sort of interesting because um, Burton's book, is, if anybody's read it, um, is probably over a thousand pages long, and it's full of quotations, you know, like he substantiates everything he says by quoting endlessly. So it's almost like that book was sort of a model for what I'm trying to do in this poem. <clears throat> I think that the thing happening in the world will become obvious. All right. Um, the Anatomy of Mel Melancholy. Apt to loathe, dislike, disdain, and weary, when the heartstrings do burn and beat, and the heart itself faints like fits of the mother, he said he wanted everything to end, not to be in my compact car discussing wishes and requiring analysis, to be inert and without meaning, as uninterpreted 
as those who cannot tell to express themselves in words or how it holds them. I do things slowly. The future seems endless. I am bothered by things that do not affect me. Now the chest, now belly and sides, then heart and headaches, now heat, then wind, now this, now that. When the Sunday bomber blew at a funeral in Tikrit and we argued again and he spent another night hard sleeping on his cluttered office floor to keep the indignation clean and glowing, at least 15 were killed and 17 wounded. The researchers repeated the experiment three times, zeroing in on the amygdala, thimble-sized trigger point for fear and craving and wild euphoric highs that sits two inches behind the bridge of the nose. He is weary of all, and yet will not, cannot tell how, where, or what offends him. The colonel said, no coalition soldier was responsible for the murder of that family, the rape and murder of that little girl. I'm all appetite. I have crying spells. It is hard to concentrate on reading. And though very modest of themselves, sober, religious, virtuous, and well-given, they cannot make resistance and are violently carried away with this inward torrent of humors. Refugees fleeing bombardment talked of chemical attacks and people melting, pieces of bombs exploding in fires that burn the skin even when water is applied. So when he lay face down on the bed in broad daylight, all the curtains drawn and said, I wish I was dead. Why did I correct his grammar? It may be the most detailed snapshot ever taken, mapping melancholy on the gray matter of the brain, and exactly what goes wrong in a mind overwhelmed by the downward spiral of despair. Everything I do is an effort. My sleep is restless. I'm not as good as other people. I have trouble keeping my mind fastened onto one thing without an ague, better marry than burn, saith the apostles, but they are otherwise persuaded. He was going to get a memorial tattoo of all the guys who were killed, but there was no more room on his arm below the elbow. In the parking lot, we parted, despondent and prone to weeping, so far gone, so stupefied with distraction, we thought ourselves charmed or bewitched. Thank you. That was Lisa Sewell reading poetry on the topic of reading, and hopefully that inspires you to keep turning the pages in the new year. And that's our show. To find out more about us or submit to read at our next event, please visit www.theinnerlooplit.com. The Inner Loop would like to thank Andrew Logan for our theme music, Mark Buckskimber for our logo, and James Skinner for technical support. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a little review on iTunes or any other streaming <laughs> site you use. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Happy writing, everyone. Right on. Right on.